You're listening to the 12 Days of Christmas. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. Taking a look at wonderful Christmas hymns with Benjamin Kologi. He's a member of Faith Lutheran Church in Plano, Texas, professional church organist and composer and contributor to the Lutheran service book, Hymnal Companion. Benjamin, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Time to take a look at another great Christmas hymn, one that has withstood the test of time of the Father's love begotten. Can you unpack this one for us? Sure. And it's it's right. But how you evaluated this, it really has stood the test of time because this is a very old hymn. And if you look in your hymnal, you can you can see how old exactly it is. But I think it's of the Father's love begotten is one of the more challenging Christmas hymns. It, there, it avoids sentimentality. It focuses on doctrine. It focuses on the role and the nature of Christ, and it avoids the pleasantries of a romanticized sort of Christmas, Christmas carol, Christmas sort of thing. And many of our favorite carols, particularly those in English, come from the 18th and 19th century. But this one, indeed, is so much earlier. It, it originates in the late 4th century. And so it really represents a different worldview, one which is much closer to the early church, and I think rewards us if we can somewhat get into that worldview in a significant way. So let's look at the author of this text, which you can see at the bottom of the hymnal. His name is Marcus Aurelius Clemens Prudentius, a very good Roman name, isn't it? Uh, he was a, an important lawyer and poet in Roman Spain. He was born in 348 AD. Remember, Rome expanded all east and west and north up till up to Britain. So Spain was a part of Rome. This was an important part time of church history too. Of the fourth century, the Emperor Constantine he'd legalized Christianity 30 years before Prudentius' birth, and during Prudentius' life, the Emperor Theodosius would make first would make Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, which, of course, resulted in a lot of mixed blessings. But Prudentius was well-educated. We don't know a lot about him, but we do know he was, he was a lawyer or perhaps a judge in Roman Spain. And by all accounts, which are mostly his own accounts, he managed a successful career, but he was stricken in conscience by the worldliness and follies of his youth. We don't really know what he did, but at age 57, he retired to a life of monastic solitude where he spent time in prayer, meditation, and of course, writing epic hymn poems. <laughs> he does when they retire, isn't it? One thing. But from these epic hymn poems, we get of the Father's love begotten. And unfortunately, history loses track of him about 413 AD. So we suppose he died around then. But of the Father's love begotten is taken from a poem from a larger book. It's called the Kathamerinon, meaning of the daily hours or for the Christian's day. It's the last of a series of 12 really lengthy poems. Remember, I told you he wrote epic poems. They're very long. But these he wrote about the various hours of the day. So when I say hours, we're talking about the liturgical hours. They're meant to be prayed at the various times of day. So some of the categories include hymn at cockcrow, which should be morning, of course. Him before and after a meal, him at lamp lighting, him before sleep, him for fasting. And he provided some other hymns for useful occasions, such as burial of the dead and Christmas and Epiphany. So of the Father's love begotten, which in Latin, of course, would have been Quirinatus ex is extracted from 
this longer collection of poems. As are the Epiphany hymns, Earth has many a noble city and a sweet flower of the martyr band, that great mm -hmm. martyr hymn. But the prologue to the Gospel John inspires Prudentius' hymn. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So let's look at that first stanza. It's almost a paraphrase of John. Of the Father's love begotten, ere, which means before, the worlds began to be. He is Alpha and Omega. He the source, the ending he, of the things that are that have been, and that future year shall see evermore and evermore. Now, here Prudentius counters that heresy of Arianism, which is really prevalent at the time. And, and that basically states Christ was created rather than begotten. So he was made. And so then the creed says he was begotten, not made. Prudentius uses this language of eternity, ere the worlds, alpha and omega, source and ending, things that are, have been a future years evermore. These sort of words, to me anyways, situates Christ almost outside and above time, but still working within its confines. So as I mentioned at the beginning, this is a really doctrinal hymn. And consider this second stanza. Oh, that birth forever blessed, when the virgin full of grace, by the Holy Ghost conceiving, bore the Savior of our race, and the babe, the world's redeemer, first revealed his sacred face, evermore and evermore. Now here, Prudentius takes us further into the creed, which, if you remember, had only been crafted a few decades before his birth. So it shouldn't surprise us that Prudentius, his language is so creedal. We sang of the Father in the first stanza, and now we sing of the Holy Spirit and the Savior. So that within just these two stanzas, there's really a clear Trinitarian reference. And in the third stanza, we recall how Christ is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. This is he whom seers in old time chanted of with one accord, whom the voices of the prophets promised in their faithful word. Now he shines the long expected. Let creation praise his Lord. So having established that Christ is begotten of the Father from all eternity, i.e. not created, Prudentius places him within the human historical situation. And although Christ transcends time, remember evermore and evermore, he's still the one whom the prophets of old time have foreseen. So he's the one who came presently at the manger, and he's the one upon whom we still look back 2,000 years later as having stepped into our own realm of time. And so the only proper response to this, Prudentius says, is for us to sing, let creation praise its Lord evermore and evermore. And the first stanza is a bit of a response. The fourth stanza, I should say, is a response to the first two. What do we do with this knowledge that God has been made manifest? Well, we do what creation does. Let the heights of heaven adore him. Angel hosts his praises Powers, dominions bow before him, and extol our God and King. Let no tongue on earth be silent, every voice in concert ring, evermore and evermore. And we remember again that Jesus responded to the Pharisees' reproach that his disciples were praising him that Sabbath day, and he said, I tell you, if they remain silent, even the stones will cry out. 
And we know also from Isaiah 6, 4, that the angels are always singing, holy, 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 sanctus, sanctus in our liturgy around, they sing this around the throne of God. And so this initial response to the gospel is always one of thankfulness and praise. Now, the final stanza is not a part of the original poem, since the original verses were not intended to be sung, nor to be taken out of context, which we do take them out of context to sing them. But sung as a hymn, a doxology at the end makes sense, because almost all Latin hymns of the Middle Ages concluded with a stanza that affirmed the Holy Trinity, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, again, to counter the heresies of Arianism. And the suitable ending reminds us that Christmas is not about an abstract baby in a manger, but it's really about the Holy Trinity, of whom the Son became manifest to redeem the world. And just to say a bit about the tomb as we conclude, it's a plain chant tune, which just means a chant. It's called Divinum Mysterium. It dates from the 13th century, we suppose. So it's much later than the, some 800 years later or so. But how Prudentius, um popularity in the Middle Ages really grew when his, his text was coupled with this tune. And this probably happened, I think, by the 10th century or so. And although the chant is very free-flowing, it was actually published in the late 16th century in a Finnish collection called Pia Cantionis. There's a lot of great hymns from there, but it was a collection of sacred folk songs, secular songs, mostly from the Middle Ages. And in this song book, the hymn is presented in triple meter and very not chant-like. So it gives it a wilting feeling, almost like a folk song. And uh, some hymnals actually preserve this triple meter. But I prefer to sing that unmeasured chant-like version. It kind of gives me a sense of that prologue of John, the mystery of God becoming flesh. This is such a great hymn to sing at Christmas. Yeah, this is definitely one of my favorites, uh, just connecting us back to Christians from so long ago. It's, it's just a wonderful hymn. Thank you so much for unpacking this hymn for us, Benjamin. You're welcome. You're listening to the 12 Days of Christmas. I'm Sarah Golseth. I'm Andy Bates. <laughs>